Welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tonsenman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. And today we have a very exciting applicant to join the Historical Film Club. We have Jason Kingsley. Now Jason is CEO of Rebellion, a computer games company which also publishes books and comics. He's the host of the Future Imperfect podcast, which you may have heard, Hannah and I are both appearing on it, and also, very interesting for us as history film buffs, a medieval horse specialist and practical archaeologist. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much. Uh, grand, a grand introduction. So what is a practical archaeologist? I think that we can learn an awful lot about things by recreating and trying things out. I mean, digging things up is hugely valuable and reading books is is wonderful and looking at manuscripts from the time um, and illustrations. But there is nothing quite like experiencing things for yourself and trying to work out whether that suit of armour could be used for jousting or that particular sword didn't work very well. That's why it's still in a museum. Uh, And so I think practical archaeology as, as a sort of an application of historical principles, but also experiencing it for yourself. Uh, so, so for me, it's a, it's another way of uncovering things about the past, but from a personal human perspective. Well, Jason, I'm hoping you might be able to help us answer some practical questions that have come up in the podcast and conversations with other people. Um, and one of the things that we've been quite interested in when we've been talking about film and television is the practicalities of the battlefield and how people actually had a fight in armour. It seems almost impossible to me <laughs> that anybody could ride a horse and then fight each other with full armour on. Are there... I don't know. How, how do you even go about it? Is there a lightweight model for the battlefield? Uh, there are variations in harness. I mean, the medieval period, obviously, is this vast, you know, it's a thousand years, really, depending on where you start and end it. Uh, and those start and end points are quite fuzzy in different places. Um, they range from Battle of Bosworth in, the, in, in England, sort of 1485, to the fall of Const- Constantinople in, in 1515. And, and arguably, nobody ever woke up one day and went, oh, I'm Tudor now, I'm not medieval. It, it's always a transition. <laughs> it sort of happens over a generation or two where you look back and you go, oh, my granddad was medieval, but I'm not. Um, so, so, so armour varies hugely and was an individual thing as well. Uh, and from the records we have, there's a whole variety of different ways of using it. So, for example, one of the things I'm always fascinated by is in some of the illustrations we have from Italy, for example, there's a people tend to wear body armour over their torso and helmets, but they often don't wear arm harness, which strikes me as kind of weird because you're going to get hit in the arms more often. But, of course, Italy can be hot, um, and <laughs> maybe you sort of balance the convenience of the armour with the perceived risk. And we also see that um, in a lot of illustrations, the the, the English soldiers, the English armoured men, are, are, are fighting on foot because fighting in what they call the English style, which is very much dismounted. Um, slightly different kind of armour as well. Very heavy, but not really expecting to charge around on a horse uh, and designed for that sort of close combat. But also, it seems like a lot of the English cavalry didn't bother with um, visors as much as some of the continental opponents would have done and that might be because they weren't expecting to have quite the same amount of missile weapons used against them or maybe they just wanted to look around more and be more mobile i mean i've noticed in the combat that i've done on horseback and and i have done not not combat 
trying to hurt people, but combat trying to genuinely sort of knock people over or genuinely try and smash a crest off their helmets in, in full contact, but with what are called rebated weapons. They're not specifically designed to kill people, uh, but but hands get broken and, and face noses get broken and that kind of thing. One of the restrictions that I found was with a visor, which you just can't see people so very well. And so I almost wanted to fight with a visor up, even though it was more dangerous and I might get something in the face. I felt on a personal level that was a balance worth sort of a risk worth taking. And I think some people feel the opposite. Some people desperately want as much over their face as possible and other people want to have light armor. So my guess is if you were wealthy enough, you bought the best armor you could afford. You went into your first battle, not quite sure what to expect. And if you survived your first battle, you swiftly modified the armor to make it work better for the second battle so so I, yeah human nature is that you, you just think this helmet doesn't really well work i've got to get it changed um and we do have a letter from a german knight who uh there was a failed escalade on a, a castle if i remember rightly and he had to swim back across the moat and walk a mile to the to his camp and his armor chafed as a result of him doing that and he wrote a sternly worded, uh, worded letter to his armorer saying, my armor chafed, you've really got to deal with this. And I just think it's so lovely to write a letter of complaint about your armor. Uh, you never see that in a film, do you? Someone saying, no, no, stop, wait, sorry, I'm cha- I've am i got some chafing issues here. Let's no, carry no, on tomorrow. No, you And I did a, a, a video on the Modern History TV thing, which was about, can you go to the loo in armor? And as anybody that's been in compromised circumstances will know, there are times when you literally can't use the facilities you you don't have the opportunity to do so and quite frankly you go (laughs) if you have to go you just go um and as horrible as that is we don't see that in the movies for pretty obvious reasons um you know that i'm sure the medieval battlefield was blood horror screams but also a lot of poo Oh no, this we is do a not classic, see that. Classic history <laughs> film club. Like this has taken us less than five minutes to get some sort of pooing in armors. <laughs> no, this is just we love this, Jason. It's brilliant. It's exactly the details. Absolutely that practicality. I mean, I remember a few years ago I got to do a fantastic thing, sort of behind the scenes day, um, with uh on Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, which uh, didn't turn out the most amazing film, but the production design and everything was incredible and the work that the team had done in terms of armor and everything was really excellent um and they gave us you know they had all sorts of different armors mocked up for the film the one that they actually wore to do any kind of fight scenes the sort of chain mail was made out of very lightweight plastic it still weighed an absolute ton and mm-hmm. they gave us kind of a square of real chain mail just to sort of six inch by six inch square just to say look at this and you picked it up and you could barely pick the damn thing up you thought honestly fighting must have been really slow if people were wearing this stuff you couldn't have uh, uh, moved fast. weirdly weirdly it isn't actually because I've, I've again i've done tournament in full plate armor with a polax huh. um which is a which is a fairly hefty piece of kit in itself my tournament armor weighs 40 kilos so and i weigh just over 80 depending on how many pies i've eaten uh (laughs) i I weigh just over 80 kilos personally so when i'm in my full tournament harness uh you know where where i'm up at 120 kilos which is towards the maximum weight that you'd want a horse really to be carrying for any length of Mm, length of time um so that's an interesting one you know medieval horses were a bit smaller than modern horses um 
weight carrying capacity of horses doesn't scale with their size necessarily. Uh, it's more to do, you know, it's a different rule. But um, broadly speaking, a, a mounted knight was towards the upper end of what is practical for a horse to actually carry for any length of time. But you kind of get used to it. it it's weird. It's the sort of thing, if you were to wear any kind of protective equipment initially, it's awkward. It has to be. It, it, it's bulky and heavy. But the more you wear it, the more you get used to it. And I wore my armour for 18 hours continuously, not the helmet the whole time, but I wore it for 18 hours for, a, for an event once. Uh, and I got incredibly used to wearing it. I wasn't too tired. I sat down a bit more, but I was walking around doing things uh, in a medieval castle, uh, doing a reenactment there, uh, eating, drinking. You have to keep hydrated because heat is a big challenge when you're wearing full plate harness you have to go sideways through doors which is an interesting one because you you can't sort of you can't shimmy around as easily you have to sort of very aware how wide you are on your shoulder your pauldrons the shoulder armor especially on my milanese harness are quite dramatically big uh they, they make your silhouette the sort of wasp waist big shouldered male silhouette that was very favored in the medieval period um but they also make it impractical for going through small doorways uh, it's really a, an outdoor type of uh, piece of equipment. But after I took it off, I felt strangely vulnerable. Um, a little bit like that kid's game where you press your arms on the inside of a doorway for a while and then step forward and your arms float up on their own. Well, for <laughs> yes. about two or three minutes after I took my armour off for the first time after wearing it for 18 hours, I felt like I wasn't quite attached to the ground uh, I was light and floaty, and it was a very weird, otherworldly experience. And I, we know that medieval people would have worn their armour for longer than that. So actually, I think after a while, it just becomes an extension of you, and you you rely on it. It's something you're just used to having, uh, and it's not something you you didn't you did once. You know, you'd practice in it as well. Another feature of films that we often see that are set in medieval periods that we're particularly interested in here at the History Film Club is jousting. And I know this is something that um, you are also an expert in. Jason, are there any films that you feel kind of capture the jousting tournament effectively? Or do you just look at the telly and go, oh, I just can't bear it. That would never have happened like that. I have two different perspectives on it. Um, one is it's brilliant to see jousting on the telly. Um, it, you know, I look at the horses and I'll think of all the training that's gone on behind the scenes. I I can recognise the different riding styles of certain stunt people. I can recognise when they're going to the close-up shot of the actor who may be not as confident a rider as the stunt people who conveniently are wearing closed helmets so you don't have to worry about not seeing their faces. Very useful, that, um, for, for filmmaking. <laughs> um, Saves a fortune I, on face replacement, yeah, yes. I, exactly. I sometimes look at and think, why have they swapped horses halfway through that joust? But most people wouldn't recognise two different styles of two different grey horses. They just see a grey horse. I would. I look at, gosh, that tilt rail is incredibly long. Um, tilt rails often weren't that long. Some of them were. There's, there's a brilliant illustration on the field of the cloth of gold with an incredibly long tilt rail. Tilt rail is fairly... That tilt rail is the uh, barrier that runs between the two horses. Um, one's running one way, one's the other. That's the bit going down the middle. Exactly the bit going down the middle. That was a fairly that was a fairly late medieval invention. It wasn't used in all jousts. There were free jousts where you had bumpers on the horses. Believe it or not, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, massive, li little <laughs> bumper yeah. cars in horses. Yeah, at fast speed. It's got like a pillow stuck to it. <laughs> yeah. um, but th that was designed to bring a bit more 
uh, organisation and rules to something which, which is intrinsically chaotic. And obviously jousting started out as practice for warfare, practice for cavalry warfare, and, and became incredibly popular, only to be, only to be sort of um, replaced by football, I believe, uh, as a popular sport. And I think it was really popular because the rich people wanted to show off and the poor people wanted to watch the rich people potentially killing each other. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it must have been, you know, will so-and-so die horribly? Oh, he hasn't this year. Well, he might die next year if we got watch. Um, and so there was a certain aspect to it that, that appealed to the, all the levels of society. Meanwhile, you've got the poor but, people cheering wildly and the rich people thinking, they love me, they love me, this yeah. is brilliant. <laughs> exactly. And they're all looking for the waiting for the accidents to happen, which is <laughs> quite a, you know, or the fight to start or whatever it is. But there, there are there are certain things that I think are always a little awkward. Real armour, real steel armour moves differently than than the plastic substitutes that they use in, in, in movies. The sound's different as well. Um, mm. I can always tell that the armour's moving differently. Uh, than it would do if it was real steel. Um, and throat and face protection, it always freaks me out when I see theatrical jousts being done and somebody doesn't have throat protection because the one place you will get hit in quite frequently is the throat. And the throat forms a really unpleasant pocket of, well, vulnerability, but also target. It's a sort of, it's an indent to the human body. And if, a, if, if, if you get hit in there in a joust, it's going to leverage your head upwards and backwards, which will potentially break your neck. Yeah. Uh, and and so you see, you know, there's a there's been a, you know, the Tudors, for example, the TV show that I, I quite liked. There's a joust in that, and they're wearing the wrong period of armor and that kind of stuff. It doesn't really matter. Um, and they're running along a really long tilt rail that's that's probably three or four times as long as it probably would would have been. Uh, and they lower their lances to horizontal too soon because that's going to get in the way of the technique. It won't. You'll you'll hit a horse rather than a rather than the, the rider, and that would ban you from the tournament if you did that, and everybody would shout at you for potentially damaging the horses. Horses are protected in a, in a, in a joust, or they should be protected in a joust. I mean, horses were obviously injured in real tournaments and, and are still occasionally uh, lightly injured, but not so much these days, because uh, safety levels are much, much greater. But, you know, throat protection. <laughs> the, the lance, if it hits you on the chest, is going to potentially slide up and hit you in the throat as well. So it's not just the first impact that you need to worry about, it's the second impact. Uh, and th this is what happens, that the physics takes over and you can't control where the lance goes. So you mentioned the Tudors, which of course does do this, but I know that another film that, I mean, I love, and I, I have a feeling that you're also quite keen on, um, is A Knight's Tale, which is where a lot mm. of people have seen jousting. Do you want to talk to us a bit about the jousting in that movie? Because it's a really central plot feature there, of course. Absolutely, it's all about the jousting tournament and the, the uh, and the, the 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 jousting tour. Jousters travelled around medieval Europe. It's one of the things people get wrong about medieval people. Lots of medieval people did travel. Obviously, travel took a lot longer in those days, but it was not unusual to go on pilgrimage quite frequently. Uh, kings went on pilgrimages quite often, and and even ordinary people, you might walk to Canterbury Cathedral. Uh, once a year or once every other year or something. So the, the whole concept of travel in medieval times is something I want to explore a bit more in, in, in some of the work I do. Uh, but people did travel quite a lot. Um, and jousters travelled a lot as well. So the entourage, the, the jousting, you would ride to the next tournament, which might be two weeks away across Europe. And I love that idea of, a, of the travelling circus that would be jousters crisscrossing Europe, England, 
you know, all the way down to Spain and back up again to the Low Countries to go to the tournament where the biggest prize money was being given. And you could become very, very wealthy through combat in tournaments. And some of these tournaments were what, what are called open field tournaments, um, where one side against another across a square mile of landscape, uh, they would batter each other and to submission. And the rules were few and far between. You weren't supposed to kill people, but people did die in it. You weren't supposed to be injuring. You weren't supposed to use sharp weapons. But the medieval concept of a sharp weapon as opposed to blunted weapon is probably a bit more lethal than we're used to. Yeah, we think of blunt weapons as foam covered or, uh, you know, made of <laughs> blunted aluminium. Where they're talking about not sharpened steel. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's still, still pretty quite, heavy. Quite, yeah. It's still heavy and and painful if it hits you in the wrong place. Um, and and there are many famous medieval knights who made their money through the tournaments, and you would make their money by capturing your opponents and holding them for ransom, literally. You know, you, it was a sport, but you captured people. You took them back to your side. They would give their word of honor, their parley, their whatever. And, yeah, they'd be allowed to go back and, and feast and have fun, but they'd have to provide you money as a reward for releasing them. So the, 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 the tournaments were actually semi-organized private battles, which, of course, the church didn't like because the, the church said if you died during tournament or the joust, um, you couldn't be buried on hallowed ground. But that was widely ignored by the, the, the well-to-do of the time. Uh, and, and they sort of stopped trying to prohibit that kind of stuff. I think their reasoning was you should be off in the uh, on the Crusades killing, killing foreign people, not killing ordinary people of your own society. Uh, I think that was actually their motivation. It wasn't about saving lives. It's about not killing the wrong kind of person. Right. Um, yeah, yes. which is an interesting one. But so back to the Knight's Tale. Knight's Tale captures the atmosphere, I think, of the medieval joust. It's the pageantry, the ceremony, the showing offness of it all, the, the posing side of it. Um, and it covers the different types of tournament there might be. There was, you know, the lance, there was lance running, the, the, the tilt itself with, with, with lances. Um, then there would have been foot combat, there would have been spear combat specialist areas, you know, a bit like the Olympics, but, but sort of focused on martial sports with armour and weapons, but lots of different categories. And some people chose several different categories to fight in, which is interesting. But <laughs> they lower their lances too soon. Their lances are too big and heavy. Uh, the lances are filled with spaghetti, apparently, uh, <laughs> to make them shatter, which is was not done back in the back in the back in the no? day. No, <laughs> is that no. Not what they did? <laughs> well, they did they did prepare lances to shatter. We know that. We know that because we have some written words about using things like pine and softwood with lots of knots in it, um, but also soaking them in running water for six months to a year to remove the resins and the things that would toughen them up, maybe soften the wood, because the idea of jousting is to break your lance on the target, isn't necessarily to strike your opponent off the horse or bring the horse and opponent down. Now, that did happen but it's much easier to score maximum points by breaking your lance on their helmet, for example, which was a target. We're pretty sure the helmet was a target, the, the eye slot being obvious, an obvious thing to aim for, which, of course, brings with it its own danger of splinters entering the helmet, which happens in real life now and happened historically and killed kings. So that's sort of worth remembering that it's a potentially lethal sport. When it goes wrong, it can go very wrong indeed. Um, 
but they, they they captured they captured all of it really well the rivalry the sort of jealousy um we don't know whether it was only nobles that could joust or not i think it was probably if you were rich enough you could joust i think it wasn't nobility as such because there were plenty of wealthy people that could claim nobility if they were wealthy enough <laughs> Um, <laughs> so the idea of a poor person entering the joust is is a bit far fetched, simply because they couldn't afford the horse and the armor. That's sort of covered, isn't it? Because in the Knight's Tale, he he is the squire, he's the training partner of a poor knight, and he gets to use that guy's armor after that guy passes away under a tree uh, and smells. There's a really funny sequence where he's his life has left him, and they brilliant brilliant script, uh, really 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 well performed by all the all the people involved. Um, but at the end of it, and I don't think this is a spoiler for anybody, our hero jousting without any armour on is just asking for trouble. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, 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 you can't hit somebody before they can hit you. It's just not possible because the, the lances are very similar length and the fraction of a second you've got between you hitting them and them hitting you is negligible. So if you're hitting them they can hit you. It's one of the few martial arts I'm aware of where there is no defence, that that there is very little you can do to defend against the other person striking you. You've just got to focus on you hitting them. And people have asked me occasionally, you know, what what do you think about when you're doing it? I'm thinking about riding the horse in a straight line, lowering my lance at the right time frame, hitting them. What about the other person's lance? I never notice the other person's lance, ever. I'm just not even aware of it. If they hit me, they hit me. And sometimes you hit them and you don't know whether they've hit you or not. And it's only when you get to the end that you realise whether one or both of you have struck. Because the impact is the same whether you give or receive a strike. Right. That's interesting. I'm glad you said, though, that it's possible that the plot of the film is plausible in terms of this ordinary boy uh, pretending, you know, posing as a noble in order to participate in tournaments because I had Mm. wanted to ask you that but actually I really also want it just to be possible um and it sounds like it is even though Mm. it's been suggested that jousting tournaments might only be the nobility that actually in the way it's constructed in the film we can buy into that so I think I can overlook the lack of armor in the last bit if that basic kind of (laughs) narrative is fine and they're fighting with spaghetti like it's going to be okay he's going to be okay with that armor (laughs) spaghetti tournament it's fine pasta jousting (laughs) if anyone does want to try this at home can i say pasta is a good idea just just get some uncooked spaghetti sticks and whack each other with that all right you know, don't, don't take it any further than that but still stay away from the throat i think and the neck yeah you know, the eyes. Don't, don't do that yeah the eyes and the throat are very vulnerable um and 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 dangerous um but it's interesting in that again in that movie that, that we 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 do know that they had some incredibly especially in Germany they had some incredibly chunky lances and we think they must have been hollow because if they were solid wood you wouldn't have been able to carry them very easily so <laughs> we think they were structured deliberately to be spectacular which which sort of winds me back into this whole uh, jousts and medieval tournaments as spectacle as well um the the are armors from the late the maximilian period the very late end of the medieval period which have targets on the chest which are clockwork almost they're actually designed with a mechanism if you strike the center of the shield properly the shield flings itself apart spectacularly ah, wow <laughs> so special effects i mean we're literally talking mechanical special effects 
designed for the joust. And we know that people wore parade armor, you know, they would steel armor carved into the face of a of a duck, for want of a better word. We know that one <laughs> German knight fought uh, because of the the pictures of this of this joust. He fought with uh, fresh sausages on a spike on his helmet. Uh, he had six, six, five or six sausages on a spike on the top of his helmet. We don't know why. We don't know the context. But a German with sausages on his head, presumably. <laughs> That, There's that an unexpected food of, theme that I hadn't yes. anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that shows a sense of humour, in my opinion. Massively yeah, strong sense of humour. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I would think it so. It probably yeah. put some inside his lance as well, if there, you know, if there was yeah. a hollow bit in the middle. Explosive maybe somebody yes. teased him. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe some Englishman said, you sausage-eating person. And he went, yes, I am, and I shall now joust you with sausages on my helmet. I um, love this. I've never but, seen but, this in a movie. And can I just I say see we your need sausage, sausage and I meet night. you with a burger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um you've got people you you have you have, for example, knights with washerwomen on their crest. You know, you you, you have you have knights with windmills on their crest. So they were yeah. they were quite frivolous, arguably. I mean, unless we're missing something from the idea of having a washerwoman on your crest, um it's not very martial. Um, there are obviously there are obviously fit, mailed fists and and you know daggers and all sorts of other things, but there are some incredibly frivolous crests as well, which which does I think bring a level of humility and 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 humour into what must have happened in these medieval jousts. I think lots of knights were having a great time. I think it was a big party actually. If you're enjoying History Film Club, please join us at www.patreon.com forward slash History Film Club. You'll get a free badge and various other exciting goodies, depending on your level of membership. See you then. Well, I, for one, would like to see some of those details in a film because I think it would add something new to what we're used to seeing on screen. So, And now we're talking about a big party, Jason. So we do like, with our new applicants for the History Film Club, uh, we obviously have a club library of uh, TV and movies, and we love to ask them for a production to nominate to add to the club library. So I wondered if you could tell us a sort of favourite historical film or TV production. doesn't have to have jousting in it, just uh, <laughs> just one that you love to add to our library. Historical. Well, um, there are some very early films. Uh, the Henry, Henry V, the, the, the classic Olivier Agincourt movie, is historically very accurate. Mm. Actually, arguably more accurate through the armour, uh, obviously Shakespeare is not accurate, but but you know, he's more accurate <laughs> yes. in the equipment and armour than is adopted in some modern uh, movies. So I would, that's a consideration. The Knight's Tale, obviously, for me, is a kind of modern jousting sort of treatise. It's 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 wonderful. So I'd, I'd sort of pencil that one in as well. I'm trying to think, I, I kind of like my, yeah, trying to think of another one that I've... Um, it's a bit later period. I love uh, Ridley Scott's The Duel, mm. the, 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 the one between the, the, the two Napoleonic officers who are, who are fighting. That's incredibly authentic, uh, as I understand the Napoleonic period. It's not my area of expertise, but some, some, it feels very, very authentic, uh, that. So I would, I would probably put Ridley, Ridley Scott's uh, thing in there because we've talked about A Knight's Tale uh, but I would, I would, I would go a little early, I'd go a little later in history and talk about that one because I think the fighting was very kinetic and feels authentic. On the other hand, I would also like to propose the classic Three Musketeer movies, 
Mm. The uh, the ones with uh, Ollie Reed in it. Um, the good ones. And, and <laughs> I, I, you know, I, those, those are great. In fact, I'll go for those. I'll go for the Three Musketeers um, uh, with Michael York, um, partly because I love the fact that Oliver Reed insists on thumping and kicking people in <laughs> the combat. And I think that's more realistic than this super fancy stuff that might have happened, that happens these days, super choreographed. I get the feeling he's having the opportunity to have a proper fight with people who aren't <laughs> going to fight back because they're stuntmen. I think we can definitely okay. put the Oliver yeah, Reed Three Musketeers in the library. Yeah, a good <laughs> fight in the library that's going to add something new. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Jason, we also ask our applicants to the film club to nominate something, um, a pet peeve, something that they don't like, uh, which they wouldn't want to see at the club library. And it can be just a general irritation or a particular kind of production. Is there anything um, that you'd like to nominate? So, Well, without, without singling any particular movie, it's the, the close-up of somebody riding an obviously fake horse that really annoys me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, it's the it's the star bouncing along completely too slowly, and uh, you know obviously they're on a they're on a camera setup. Uh, we know that now from behind the scenes things. Yeah, you know, they're on a fake horse. They're bouncing up and down, and there are real horses in the background going at the right sort of speed, and um, obviously being ridden. And the, the the poor actor is being bounced at a ridiculously slow speed, um, <laughs> like they're riding some giant Shire horse that isn't going up and down at the right pace. And he's going up and down inauthentically as well, because horses don't go up and down like that. They kind of move in a different kind of pattern. And it really annoys me because it can't be that difficult to have a mechanical a horse that, you know, the horse movement, uh, the fake horse. I understand there needs to be a fake horse for all sorts of technical reasons. It can't be that difficult to make it move like a real horse, surely. Okay, that's a good one. And I have to say, when you were describing that, I was actually doing fake horse riding in my chair. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, second, to me, to me, yeah. Well, to me, it's yeah. second only to the people driving, you know, when they're filming driving and there's obviously rear projection and they're moving the steering wheel all the time. Yeah. You're thinking, what yeah. sort of a zigzag like, road are they going swerving down? Swerving wildly. Yeah, yeah. just, yeah. just, chatting, just chatting to yeah. the person in this passenger yeah. seat, you know, for five minutes, not looking at the road. <laughs> exactly. And you don't need, mostly you don't use, you don't turn the steering wheel. You can just hold it still, okay? Yeah. Because you're going along straight until you turn a corner, then you need to turn the steering wheel. <laughs> But you don't have to sort of zigzag with the steering wheel and sort of drive like a toddler pretending to drive. It's just, just hold it still. What? If you get given yeah. a prop, you want to play with it. That's the problem, isn't it? It's how do you stop yeah. them? Because so they're, you know, they've got a steering yeah. wheel, it turns around and around and it's fun. So it's <laughs> yes. But directors, please stop telling your actors to move the steering wheel more because it's not how we drive. You know? And um, somebody out there must be able to create a mechanical horse that moves at the speed and rhythm of a real horse. Surely. Okay. There you go, listeners. There's a competition coming up. Please design a mechanical horse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that is brilliant. Uh, Jason, without further ado, I would love to welcome you as a member of the History Film Club. Um, We would now normally, uh, of course, we like to offer our new members a drink from the club bar, which is a highly sophisticated bar that can make any drink, modern or historical. So uh, what would your choice of drink be? I would like a mead, please. I would like a, a nice honey mead. Um, yes, sort of Viking style, original mead, not not flavoured, not a melamel or anything with fruit in it, just mead made with local honey 
uh, and, uh, and, and well fermented. Excellent. We shall get that ready. And thank you very much, Jason Kingsley. And thank you for listening. This has been the History Film Club. You've been listening to the History Film Club with Alex von Tunzelman, Hannah Gregg and Jason Kingsley. It was produced by Nathaniel Tapley for Globy Productions. The assistant producer was Abby Robinson. To join the Patreon for free badges, offers, watch-alongs, all sorts of things, go to www.patreon.com forward slash History Film Club. 